So I'm going to pick up uh, last week's um, sermon. This is part four in a series. It's called Navigating Through the Storm. It's a continuation of what I've been talking about. And today we're going to focus on some of the ways that we as a church can overcome the darkness of this fallen world that we live in. We call this spiritual warfare, you know, learning how to overcome the schemes of the evil one. And effective spiritual warfare takes place when we place our trust in Yeshua as our only Savior and King. That's effective spiritual warfare. That's where it all begins. Through His redemption, we're born from above. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin our journey back to the ancient paths of His commandments. As we discover and embrace and begin to walk out truth and righteousness as found in His Word, we experience increased liberty and victory over the evil one. This is a walk of faith. In fact, faith is one of the core weapons in overcoming the enemy. So in this teaching today, we're going to pick up last week's insights where we already started to explain what faith is and how to employ that in spiritual warfare. We're going to pick that up and, and continue to see how we can use it to effectively overcome evil in our lives and even in our world. Now, we left off last week in Ephesians chapter 6, where the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles is teaching them a Hebraic biblical worldview of the supernatural and how it operates and intersects with the natural realm. This whole teaching that Paul gives us is rooted in Genesis chapter 6, where it is recorded that the sons of God, powerful, divine beings, come into our world and cohabitate with women, corrupting human DNA and spreading their wicked ways among those living at the time. Apostolic writers like Paul refer to this and other events when they talk about spiritual warfare. This is where it all gets its traction. They draw significantly from the book of Enoch, which has much to say about Genesis 6 and the fallen angels. The spiritual realm and its beings and powers are real and intersect with our world and lives more than what most people understand. Learning how to protect yourselves and your loved ones is part of the reason why Paul wrote this theme in Ephesians. Effective spiritual warfare will bring us to a place of great liberty and blessing. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16. He says, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, if you think back to Adam and Eve, right? How were they led astray? How was it that the serpent led them astray? He did that by introducing lies to them, seductive lies. They were really half-truths where he began to twist the scriptures and cause them to question God. And it was through that teaching, through those lies, that they got off track 
led into rebellion and introduced sin and death into our world. They considered the lie, they believed the lie, and then they acted in accordance with the lie. Freedom comes when we encounter the truth. We believe it, and then by faith, we act in accordance with it. Then freedom comes. It's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's a fight that is won after exercising faith long enough to overcome the threat. 1 Timothy 1, 18-19. We introduced this to you last week. I'm going to read it again. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, hold that screen up there just for one moment. He says, I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, by these prophecies, you fight the good fight. What fight? The good fight of faith. Well, what's that fight all about? That fight is all about trusting God and what he says about the world we live in, about living in accordance with what he's given to us. Because we're in this great struggle with evil. And evil is very, very refined and very seductive. And without the truth, we're never going to make it. Without the truth, we'll never be free. And so what we need is a truth encounter. We talked about this when, when Jesus in uh, um, chapter 8 of John told his disciples, you know, if you will live in my ways, if you'll abide in my ways, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Faith is one of the weapons of our warfare. When we learn to put our trust in God's word, we can overcome anything and everything that comes our way. This fight is an ongoing fight. It's a struggle. It doesn't, it doesn't end overnight. You don't win anything overnight. You got to get in the fight and you got to stay in the fight. You might lose multiple rounds. Remember Rocky Balboa, if you're old enough, <laughs> the old Rocky movie, right? Gets beat up for 12 rounds. He's face down on the mat in the 12th round, blood on his face, on his chest, on the mat. Even his ring manager throws the towel and he's telling him, stay down, stay down. And he doesn't, of course, he gets back up and at the end of that round, knocks him out and wins the fight. Yeah, that's what it's like. There's going to be times in which you're going to get your, you know, get clocked and, and, and knocked on your back. You just get right back up. You get right back in the fight. You cannot run from the enemy. You got to overcome the enemy. You can't run from your problems. You got to overcome your problems. Don't expect the serpent to fight fair. He doesn't fight fair. He's not called the serpent for nothing. I want to tell you, when, when I, I, for those that are new, I was a professional kickboxer back in the day. And uh, I remember uh, another fighter, uh, it was both of our pro debuts, and so it would be our first professional fights. 
And we had a great, great fight manager. In fact, he produced more world champions than anyone in the United States. He had the, the, the best fighting school out there, bar none. And I remember our, de our debut, and I'd already fought that day, and, and uh, it was his turn, my, my friend's turn. And so he's out there. And you know, in your pro debut, you're so nervous, and it's the first time under the lights, and, you know, it's, it's just so, just, you know, you just get sapped waiting to get in the ring in terms of your, your strength. So he's in there, he's all nervous, and uh, they start the, the round, and they're fighting, and, and uh, he gets kicked below the belt, which, which in the, in the uh, professional uh, sport, you couldn't do that back in those days, unlike the UFC. <laughs> um, we were the predecessors to the UFC. So anyway, you can't kick below the belt. So if you get kicked below the belt, uh, the, the, the ref's gonna stop the fight, you get 10 seconds to kind of catch your, your breath, and then you get back in the fight. Well, he gets kicked below the belt, and the ref doesn't see it. He, he, I don't know if he blinked or, or, or what, but he didn't see it. And my friend is holding his groin. The other fighter stopped because he realized what he did. And my friend's holding his groin, and he's backing up, and he's coming to the corner, and he's telling our, the, our fight manager, he, he's saying, he kicked me, he, you know, kicked me below the, below the belt, you know. And, and the fight manager's saying, get in the fight! Get in the fight. And the ref's confused as to what's going on. And he's telling the other fighter, go ahead. And the other fighter's making his way across, figuring out it's a go. While our fighter isn't paying attention. And so, so the ring is about four feet high, you know. And our fight manager's standing there. And as he's looking down and the guy's coming across, our fight manager took and hit him a full slap and hard and he, he was a professional fighter in his day. I mean, he hit him hard, right in the face. Boom! And that just launched him forward. And he continually continued to yell, Get in the fight! And he did. Got back in, and he won. But if that fight manager had not redirected him to get back in, he probably would have been knocked out because he wasn't paying attention. And that other fighter was going to take advantage of it. The enemy's not going to fight fair. Don't expect him to fight fair. Life isn't fair. Don't expect life to be fair. Get in the fight and by faith, overcome your enemy. Right? 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Faith in what? Faith in Yeshua as our Messiah and faith in His Word. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So last week I talked about uh, Don and myself uh, decades ago being in a really bad place in our marriage, being separated and talked about the John Wimber Conference and and I got some prophetic words there uh, that already bore witness with what God had already put in my heart. And I just want to say this really quick. Don't let, don't let prophetic words um, direct your life. You spend time with God and let God speak to you. And then prophetic words will confirm that. And that's what you'll let direct your life, 
right? Prophetic words are designed to confirm what God has already told you. And then by those words, you stand your ground. You fight your fight. And so, you know, I thought my marriage was over. I thought my wife didn't love me. All the things she said, all the mess we were in. And, uh, and yet God spoke some words to me concerning my marriage and that he was going to bring that together. And then I got prophetic words on top of that. And so I was off and running. You know, I told you last week, I came and told my wife, um, uh, which we were pretty much in the middle of, of getting a divorce. And I told her, I said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. I, you know, I went to the conference and this is what God said, you know, uh, our marriage is going to make it and we're going to have a baby. <laughs> you know, and, and we know that wasn't too popular. I was back on the couch, but, uh, but, but I was fighting my fight of faith. I was living according to the words given to me pro- prophetically that corresponded with what his will was for our lives anyway. And I stood my ground, fought that fight, continued to say, no, I'm going to believe God to restore our marriage. And one of those things that God promised us in the midst of our separation was that he was going to give us a baby. And we were barren, of course. We'd been barren for seven years. In fact, we weren't even supposed to have our first child. Uh, Don had... Um, uh, a double hernia when she was about six months old. And so when they went in to correct uh, the hernias, they, they had to, you know, uh, operate on her. Um, the doctor said uh, the ovaries were completely twisted up in, into the hernias and that she will not be able to conceive. And so, uh, so we weren't supposed to have children. So we called our first child our miracle child. You know, there's an amazing story behind that. Uh, but we got our miracle child. She was about seven years old. We're separated. Marriage is over. It just looks so bad. And, and then God just, just, you know, did some amazing things and began to turn that around. But one of the promises were we're going to have a baby. So when I told Don that, of course, she was not excited because she was divorcing me. In fact, she said, well, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I am going to have a baby, but it's not going to be with you. You know, she was very, very hurt at the time. And uh, I had caused a lot of that. But nonetheless, that all came together. And uh, God did some amazing things in her heart. My heart brought us together. And then seven years later, Dawn gets pregnant. A seven-year window transpires. And then that which was promised comes into being. We waited and waited and waited, believed God. And all of a sudden, seven years later, when she's almost 40, she's pregnant. It was, it was great. I should tell you the story. We're going to the doctor, right? Telling the doctor, uh, you, know, um, you know, asking the, doc- the doctor questions about uh, being pregnant. And every time we asked him the question, he'd turn around to Jessica, who was about 15 at the time. And he'd answer, he'd, he'd answer the question looking at her. So about two or three questions in, I figured out... He, he thinks she's pregnant. He, he thinks we brought our daughter in because she's pregnant. Teenage pregnancy, right? I mean, he's thinking these old people here, there's no way they're pregnant. It's got to be their daughter, right? It's like, no, it's us. You know, we're pregnant, you know? And so um, we're off and running, and, and uh, Don went through a pretty, pretty uh, tough pregnancy. Um, in fact, when we went in for our ultrasound, uh, we're in a small room. The doctor's doing the ultrasound. He turned off the lights. The computer screen's on. I'm standing behind him um, 
looking over his shoulder, and he's, he's, he's got the screen going, and he's doing this. He says, okay, we're going to look at the top of the head. This is kind of like an aerial view, looking down into her skull. And so as he's doing that, he says, oh, no. And I thought, you know, I mean, I mean, when he said, oh, no, I mean, that just, it rocked me. I'm thinking, oh, no, what, is, what does no mean? You know, that's my baby. What do you mean, no, you know? Can't you, can't you just like, do you have a filter? Can you just think it or do you have to say it, right? And then he reaches over on the screen, moves the mouse, moves over to the box where it says the brain, and he, he, uh, he checks, it was like abnormal or whatever, it was the box that there's a problem, and checks that box. Doesn't even do the rest of the ultrasound. He gets up, he turns on the lights, he says, you guys wait here. Leaves the office, comes back, few, actually about 10 minutes later, comes back and says, uh, we, got, we got some problems, and he says, I want you to come into my office, and he says, I've got two doctors that are going to talk to you via uh, a phone call, and we got to make some decisions. So we went in there, sat down with him, he says, look, he says, uh, at your age, and what I'm seeing on the ultrasound, he says, uh, this child is not viable. You're going to have to really uh, move, move you know, quickly at this point and do an abortion because at that time you can only do an abortion up to a certain uh, point in the pregnancy. And so they, they said, you know, we need to do this and do this quickly. I'm, so, I'm sorry to give you that news and da-da-da-da-da. And, uh, you know, they said, um, we're going to confirm this with an amniocentesis and, and then we'll schedule, you know, an abortion. Uh, we do have another doctor who uh, will do another ultrasound for if that's what you want to do, but we recommend the amniocentesis. And so I looked at the doctor and I said, look, doc, I said, uh, we, we already knew at our age that there were some risks uh, with this pregnancy, um, but we went ahead with that. And we've already made a decision to have this child regardless. So it doesn't matter if there's a problem with our child. It's our child. And so we're not doing no abortion. And he says, well, you know, I don't think you, can, you understand, you know, you know, the burden that this could create for you, your family, and so forth. And I said, look, look, we're, we're not going to talk about that. He says, just talk to the, to, to the doctor that I'm going to call. She's already been notified. And she's going to explain to you, you know, the amniocentesis. And then you can go and see another doctor who does a level four, which back in the day, level four was an amazing piece of technology that you could really see into the womb. I mean, it's, it's 10 times better nowadays. But back then, this was breakthrough stuff. And, uh, and he was the number one doctor in the nation in terms of level four ultra ultrasounds. So I said, well, we'll skip her. We're just going to go straight to him. And, and regardless of what he finds, you know, we're still going to have our baby. But we don't want to do the amniocentesis because we know that alone could cause the abortion, could trigger it. So we don't want to do that anyway, you know. So he says, well, you still have to talk to her. So we got on the phone. She explained to us, you know, what she was going to do and so forth. And I told her, I said, well, thank you very much, but we're not going to take your services. Uh, we're going to see Dr. George. They were all in the same building. And uh, we're just going to go see him. And so she says, well, actually, you can't see Dr. George without seeing me. She said, so I'll see you at 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we'll do the amniocentesis, and then you can see Dr. George. And uh, I said, okay, whatever, because I'd already made up my mind I wasn't going to do it anyway, so, you know, no, no need to argue on the phone, right? So uh, during that time, uh, Dawn's stepfather had passed away just two or three days earlier, and she was grieving because she was very close to him. 
And she was grieving with that loss. And now she's struggling with all this pressure on us to do an abortion. It was amazing how much stress she was under. She was just like, I just felt so bad for what she was going through. So we went over to the, uh, the, where the other do- doctors were, and we're sitting there that morning. I told her, you know, we are not going to do an amniocentesis. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. So the doctor comes out uh, and introduces herself and says, you know, why don't you come on back? We're going to go ahead and do this uh, procedure. It's, it's, it's not going to take that long at all. Everything's set up. And I said, excuse me, doctor, we already talked on the phone. And I said, we're not going to do it. So, you know, we're not going to do it. You told us to be here by 8, so we're here by 8. But I, I want to inform you what I've already told you on the phone. We're not doing it, you know. And she says, no, you have to do it. I said, no, we're going to talk to Dr. George. She says, no, you can't talk to Dr. George. He's not even in today. I said, what do you mean? He's supposed to be scheduled too. Well, he's not in today, so we're going to do this. You can reschedule with him later. And I said, well, you know, we're not going to do this. I said, you know, Dawn spoke up and she said, look, I just lost my father-in-law or my uh, stepfather. And she says, "Uh, I'm just, I I can barely cope with that. I, I can't do this procedure. Do you understand that? She goes, honey, if you're already grieving over one loss, you might as well grieve over the next two. Do it all together. Get through it now. I mean, she was like, this whole process was for her just a process to move us towards the abortion. She had already made up her mind as a professional what she was going to push us into. So I said, Don, get your coat. I stood up, I grabbed mine. Don grabbed hers. I told that doctor, I said, we're out of here. I said, we are not doing this. She goes, hold on, hold on. She goes, just... Let me call Dr. George. I said, what? She goes, I'll call, call Dr. George. If you want your ultrasound, you know, we'll give that to you. She goes, he's off though, and so I might have to get in one of his um, people that work for him to do this. She goes, just sit down. She knew she was in so much trouble. She knew it, so she's trying to scramble now. So we're in there waiting, waiting, waiting. She's trying to make some calls. The elevator doors open up. Here comes this short, little, fat guy. He just came out. He's just, just a little rotunda guy, you know. And he's got an entourage of people around him. They all got clipboards. They're talking to him. They're writing things down. He's moving in a big white lab coat, you know, and they're all around him, you know. And I heard one of them say, Dr. George. They were asking him a question. He said, Dr. George. And as he went by me, I realized, that's Dr. George. I said, Dr. George. You know, they all stopped. He turns around and looks at me. You know, I stood up. I said, Mark and Don McClellan, we're supposed to be scheduled to meet with you. You're supposed to do an ultrasound. We need that now, right now. So he like looks around and he goes, what's my schedule look like? You know, so they looked at his schedule and they said, well, you're pretty open this morning. He says, well, bring him in. So we came right in, you know, and I'm looking at that nurse. She's just throwing me a bunch of shade. I mean, the, the, the other doctor, she's, she's throwing me all kinds of shade. We go in there. And he looks at our chart, and he says, oh, okay, I see, I see. He says, um, we're going to do an ultrasound four. He says, I think I can figure this out. This won't take long at all. Um, he was so encouraging. He was just a blessing. He didn't have his team in because he wasn't scheduled to do anything. So he called the desk and asked the other doctor to come in. And he told the other doctor, I need you to set this up for the McClellans. So now the doctor's having to perform like a nurse and serve us. It was so great. She had to stand by the little machine that was printing out the photos, and she's like taking the photos, and she's just like pitching them. She's so mad. So uh, he says, yeah, the first thing we're going to look at uh, is for Down syndrome, and he says there's five signs, depending on how many, many we see here. 
it will tell us what the percentages are in terms of having a, a Down syndrome child. He says, let's start with the first one. He gets the baby up. He, he, so he's got the ultrasound uh, four on, right? And he gets the picture of, of Shana. This is Shana, our promised child. Gets the picture of Shana up there. Shana's in the womb. She's like in a sitting position, you know. He says, all right. He says, uh, we're going to look for the hands. And as he said that, she goes like this. Turns and looks in the camera like she heard him. And she goes like this. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. She waves at us. And then she like goes. He says, well, she's saying something. He says, uh, but the first sign is clear. And they went to the second, third, fourth, fifth. Everyone. He says, this baby's perfect. He goes, now I want to show you something else which your previous doctor saw. And he scanned the brain area, and there was there's two you know marble size what looked like tumors on top of the brain. He says usually there's only one. It's just a bunch of blood vessels that form, and they are the nutrition center for brain development. And it's very very rare to have two. He says, but when you have two, what that means is you got all this extra extra nutrition for the brain development. He says, so the brain's not the problem at all. He says, in fact, this is going to be a really bright child. But most doctors, when they see that, not knowing that, assume that it's tumors. And so they get all worked out, but it's nothing. He says, in fact, a couple more weeks, they'll be gone. He says, go have your baby. You know, we, we left that place. Waited seven years for the promise of God, believed God, and now had medical professionals pushing us into an abortion. We almost caved to that pressure. It was so enormous. You know how that is with, with, you know, when you're in those kind of places. And so it was an enormous amount of pressure. We believed God. We trusted God. We stayed the course. We refused. And in the end, it was the exact opposite of what those doctors had initially thoughts. We went back and told the first doctor who was caring for us, who sent us to the doctor who did the first um, ultrasound, and then the other doctor who was doing the amniocentesis. When we told her the story, she wrote several letters and then told us, um, due to confidentiality, I can't say anything other than this. We helped that other doctor find a new career. Wink, wink, nod, nod moved her on. It was great. So anyway, so here we are pregnant going forward and things are like um, going pretty good. And then Don gets a urinary tract infection, which is pretty common for uh, pregnancies. So we go into our doctor and sure enough, her count was up. And so doctor put her on some antibiotics and said, come back in a week. So we came back a week later. Yeah, her count had doubled, had doubled. So the doctor thought, well, that's unusual. Let's go ahead and switch antibiotics and let's get on top of this. Switched antibiotics, we went back home, came back, and not only had it doubled, it doubled again. The doctor thought the count was off. So sometimes those, those um, tests are not real accurate. Just assumed, no, 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 that's, that, that can't be, you know, and uh, gave us another round of antibiotics, sent us home. Yeah, so Don sick during the week, just, just she had gotten so bad. I called the doctor up, I said, look, she is really bad. She's not getting better. He says, bring her, bring her in right now, just immediately, get her in here. 
stuttering in her. Her count was up to 90,000. She was way up, had a fever. The doctor said, oh my gosh, straight to the hospital. It was a couple blocks away. You know, she says, get her straight to the hospital. I'll be right there. So we went to the hospital. They did a number of tests. Sure enough, she had a bacteria resistant, uh, uh, or, or the bacteria was resistant to antibiotics. And, uh, and, and what that means is this. Not only the antibiotics don't work, they, they tend to like nourish the bacteria. It's like, it's like fertilizing your lawn. You know, they, they feed off the antibiotics, which is why her count went so high so fast. So they, they went in there and they said, look, we got two super antibiotics, only two. We're going to try the first one, but you're only about, you know, 24 hours away and we got to do a C-section. Because, uh, you know, with what is going on with Dawn, um, you know, we're going to have to get on this right away. And we're thinking the C-section, preemie, it's about seven months in our pregnancy. That's going to create a lot of problems too. You know, a preemie comes with a number of problems because of a premature birth. And so we're thinking, what is going on? So they got her on these uh, super antibiotics and I'm with her and uh, went several hours into the evening and she was just feeling so bad. And we'd both been crying and we're like, God, what is going on? You know? This is our promised child. We've been through so much already. What is this? You know, what is going on? And we just were, you know, praying and agonizing over that. And I just sensed the Lord was saying, what did I speak to you? What did I promise you? Focus on that. Pray that. Declare that. Proclaim that. Stand your ground. And I was encouraged by that because I was just, you know, kind of buying into what the doctors were going to do in several hours in the next morning. So I told Don, I said, Don, look, our only hope is what God had said. He made these promises to us. We waited seven years. Look at what we've already been through. I said, the enemy's trying to kill our promises, trying to kill our promised child. I said, is it any wonder, you know, why are we wondering about this big battle? Why are we surprised? We should have expected it. I said, let's refocus. Let's thank God. Let's believe God for a miracle. And we did. We started praying. We started proclaiming. I was marching around in the hospital room. And, and we both, we encouraged ourselves and stood our ground, refocused our faith and prayed for the next several hours. They come in the morning, they checked her, they said, well, that's strange. Her count's almost down to normal. We've never seen anything like this. Normally, it'll take several days to bring a count down that's that high. You're down, you're down. It's so close to normal, they came back, they said, we're going to release you. They like released us from the hospital like an hour later. They were going to do a, a, a C-section hours before. Now we're going home. It was amazing. We told her other doctor, it was. We told her other doctor, the other doctor said, you know what? I've never seen that in my entire career. I've never seen uh, that level of infection come down within several hours. I've never seen that. We said, that's God. That's God. We, we believe that's what God did. She says, well, praise God, go home, you know? And uh, we ended up having our promised child. That, that's our little Shana. Just love her so much. You can never, never know how many times I wanted to get her in the car 
and drive her down to those other two doctors and say, that's, that's the one you wanted us to, to end her life, you know? What are you thinking? But regardless, God made good on his promises, but we had to learn. And we have to fight for the promises of God. There's a fight to enter into. When he gave him the land, he said, go in and take it. Fight for it. They had to go in and take possession of the land. There's work to do. So what we got to do when it comes to spiritual warfare and things going on in our, in our lives, when the enemy comes to attack us, we've got to stand our ground and we've got to speak the word of God and we've got to persevere. And in due time, he, the enemy, will retreat. Always has, always will. Okay, let me just come down to First um, Peter chapter five, six through eleven. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the. You know what? I'm going to skip that one just due to time. Ephesians six eighteen says, with all prayer and petition at all times, pray in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray at all times. Pray in the Spirit. You know, you can pray in the flesh. Praying in the flesh is when you pray your problems to God through your flesh. Where you focus on your problems, and you gripe, and you complain, you express your fear, and you do that under the guise of prayer. That's called praying in the flesh. It's still a prayer. Not very effective. You know why? God doesn't respond to the flesh. He responds to faith. Our job when we pray is to find the will of God in the matter and pray in accordance with God's will, with God's ways, with God's word. And when you pray like that, you're praying in the spirit. You're lined up with the spirit. And those kind of prayers are always, always effective. So I want to encourage you that as you pray, understand you can move mountains. You can can bring about enormous change by praying in the Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. Let me give you an example, right? Mark chapter 11. This is Jesus instructing them, his disciples, about how to pray. And Jesus answering said to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. That's an amazing promise that you and I can speak and bring about enormous change as long as we do that by faith that when we speak it and believe it, God says, I'll give it to you. That is enormous. Most of us do not understand the mechanics of that kind of faith. He goes on to say, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. When we pray and ask, we should only pray and ask for that which we can believe for. Because if you can't believe for it, it's not going to be an effective prayer. 
Jesus says, when you pray, you need to believe that you've already received that request. And then it will be granted to you, not before, but after. What does that look like? What does that mean? That means when we're praying, we got to be convinced that what we're praying for is lined up with the word of God and the will of God. And then we got to believe that we're receiving that which we're praying for, which means we thank God before it even comes. You know, we were in the hospital room saying, we're going to have our promised child. You promised us a child. We're going to have our child. We're going to leave this hospital. Everything's going to be okay because you are our God. Thank you, Father, that we're going to make it through this. Thank you, Father, that we're not going to have a C-section. We're going home. You got to thank God, and you got to have that kind of faith that puts in your heart the reality that you've already received it. It's just waiting to manifest now. And when you have that kind of faith, you'll move mountains. You'll bring transformation in your own life, and you'll bring change in those around you. We need to believe God when we pray and ask Him, and then walk in accordance with it. We've got to be able to walk in relationship to already having received it. And then it will come, not before. Mark closes with this. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you in your transgressions. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you your transgressions. It's interesting that this is coupled with this passage. We find this in another passage as well in James, where it says, confess your sins that you might be healed. Now call the elders, they're going to anoint you with oil, and the prayer of faith shall raise those who are sick. And then it goes right on to say, confess your sins that you might be healed. Somehow this whole issue of the gospel is tied into this prayer of faith. That the faith that moves mountains comes to those who are humble and contrite in their sins. To those who are generous and merciful in forgiving one another. That when your hearts are right with God and right with each other, man, your prayers, they zoom, they happen. They bring about the change that is needed. It's another component of what it means to pray in the Spirit. So let me close with this. Spiritual warfare is where the origin of all battles against evil begins. We call it spiritual warfare. And our first step into this battle of spiritual warfare is when we switch allegiance from the serpent and his kingdom to Yeshua and his kingdom. It's then and only then that we begin to take dominion over our lives as we learn to safeguard and cultivate our liberty by aligning ourselves and ways with God's word. In addition, we learn how to create sacred space in our homes, in our communities, where we work, even in our nation. Ultimately, we fight against these wicked superpowers that Paul begins with in chapter 6, we fight against these wicked superpowers in order to free others 
and even our nations that we live in. Our weapons are spiritual. They are super powerful. Triumph there by doing effective spiritual warfare. And your life and world will experience a market increase in blessing and peace. Together, we will obtain freedom as we change the world around us. Simply put, spiritual warfare on an individual level is walking out the word of God by faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, one day at a time. You're going to lose some battles along the way, but eventually you're going to win the war. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We as a Torah-based faith community are also commissioned by our king to apply these same spiritual principles in liberating and shaping other realms, including marriage and the family. It's under attack, right? Also liberating and shaping other realms, including art and entertainment, education, business, religion, media, even the government. We're called to be the change agents as we advance the kingdom of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. I want to encourage you to increase your spiritual warfare. Press into the liberty that is yours in Messiah. And then look for ways to influence and bring liberty to those around you and to transform the realms that we intersect with. That's what it means to be involved in spiritual warfare.